Hi, everyone. Sorry, that took a little while. Right before we started, I almost had a microphone issue. I think it's resolved. I hope it's resolved. It appears to be resolved. Um, we shall see. Othello, if you can text me to make sure it's good so we can make sure this is a-okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 151 of my live chat. I hope all is well. Today we'll get to, I saw some questions around, let's see, some of the GOAT debate. I saw some questions around Gon's future. A lot of UFC 285 leftovers, plus some other stuff along the way. But whatever is on your mind, we can get to that. So thumbs up on the video. Please hit subscribe. Thank you so much. Uh, you might notice that uh, today for the Showtime presser, there's going to be another one in LA. It's actually going to be Brian Campbell and Ariel Hawani who are going to be taking care of that around the 4 uh, p.m. mark, although Tank was two hours late yesterday so god knows when that's actually going to get off the ground but uh i have child care issues i could not be there unfortunately so those gentlemen are going to take it uh uh take that broadcast and i'm sure make it great um so be on the lookout for that on the showtime sports youtube channel wish i could be there but dc public schools are fucking with my life so uh that's that um okay you guys know the drill we started at about the five minute mark we'll go for about an hour you're certainly under zero obligation to leave a donation, but if you do, we'll get to your questions, put them on screen at the end, yeah? All right, so with that out of the way, let's get this party started if we can. I appreciate you guys being here. Let's go. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. And we also have your questions. Your questions. Let's throw them in there, shall we? Let's do it. Here we are. Okay. First things first. Actually, let's hit refresh one last time. And then we go down. All right. First things first. Paul Craig was so much fun. That guy needs a podcast. Yeah, Paul Craig was great. If you guys haven't seen it, we put the uh, room service diaries out that we recorded when we were in London for the uh, the live show. And I got to tell you, man, we had three RSDs that we did when we were out there. We tried to get a few other ones, but... We just couldn't make it work with the timing. We, had, we were on a tight schedule. I mean, we literally did like an, I'm not even doing a bit, an hour of sightseeing, like an hour. Um, so keep that in mind. But uh, we got the Arnold Allen one, we got the MVP one, and then we got the Paul Craig one. And Paul Craig had, they, they all were good. I mean, I got to say, like in general, the British MMA fighters <laughs> that we spoke to this week, that was the best stretch of RSDs just in terms of like, quality conversation that we'd probably had maybe ever the british fighters you know i don't want to overstate things because you know it's a very small sample size but like i remember when the trip was over even our producers from both cbs and showtime were like dude the british guys are they're better than the american fighters when it comes to you know just being able to carry like a very interesting conversation and telling stories obviously that's overgeneralizing a little bit but certainly those three gentlemen um, we're really, really good at it. I do think the Brits in general are a little bit better at it than we are, um, you know, again, case by case basis. But uh, in this one, they, they, and again, uh, obviously Paul Craig is Scottish, but, um, you know, the guys from that part of the world, they, they do a great job with, with just knowing how to carry a conversation. That one in particular is tremendous. If you haven't seen it yet, really encourage you to see the Paul Craig one. Very, very, very good. The Arnold Allen one people like too for what it's worth. But uh, that one's the Paul Craig one is light and funny and just he's he's a, he's a trip, man. He was fun to talk to in person, very friendly on time. It was I, I really had I had a great time. You guys know me. I'm not a big I, if fighter interviews were all like this, I would do a lot more fighter interviews. You know, this is what I'm looking for is let's have a real conversation. Um, yeah, there's cameras and, you know, it's somewhat artificial, obviously, but 
it, there's a little bit more depth and nuance when you can have a setting like that versus, hey, you get on Zoom at one o'clock and I'll get on Zoom and then we'll talk about your upcoming fight for 15 minutes. That just doesn't do much for me. I don't think it does much for the audience at this point either, you know? So this is a little bit different, I hope. A little bit different. Uh, all right. Luke, do you think it's possible we don't see the same longevity in Gon's career as other heavyweights due to how reliant his style is on athleticism? It cannot be easy to move a frame that big once you get into your late 30s. Also, how likely do you think it is he gets another title shot with guys like Blades, Aspinall, and Spivak around? So a couple things I would say here. In general, you do see quicker drop-offs, like independent of weight class. As a general rule, if you have a if a fighter's game, let's say they're they're like one of those bouncers, like an MVP type, right? Um, he's certainly a little bit long in the tooth, but obviously he's been able to retain a lot of his speed and explosivity over time. His reflexes are still pretty good, um, you know. And obviously, there's a question about the overall strength of schedule that he's had, but. Once that begins to really go, it's very, very hard to get. Your game begins to drop off precipitously because there, there is a certain level of technique that's tied in, but that technique is very much girded by the speed and reflexes or what, whatever the particular athletic dimension is that heightens it, right? Um, uh, even though he's much older, you would imagine that when um, old Romero gets, like when the speed really begins to go, it's all going to decline very quickly. Um. So, sure, in, in the larger sense that it's true that when your game, uh, that when you get older in your game, if it's, if it's sufficiently based on enough athleticism, and if that declines, um, and that's, you know, we're talking about razor-thin decisions or razor-thin margins in terms of that, those reflexes keeping you safe and now not, because it, it doesn't take a precipitous drop-off in terms of athleticism to have a precipitous drop-off in results. That's sort of the problem. People think you have to be like way shot before the results start looking poor. And the answer is that's really not true. You have to look just moderately different um, and it could start to look real bad. So in that sense, yes. On the other hand, as we all know, even as heavyweights age, there can be ways in which um, he can modify his game to potentially stay relevant. We've seen guys like Andre Orlovsky been able to like kind of retrofit his game a little bit to make it more useful. It doesn't make him nearly as potent, but it certainly gave him some real longevity um, and obviously, he was a much, he was a very devastating puncher early in sort of the middle parts of his career. So the the, the broader answer is yes. Um, I don't think he loves fighting enough, candidly, to be able to like say we're confidently he's going to be around when this even happens. I I kind of feel like he might get out before all of that even really takes place. There's a I think there is a broader question about his, you know, not how great of an athlete he is. He's obviously a great athlete, and not even that he like. I don't think he went into the fight with Jones to like lay down. I don't think he had that intention, but you know, it, it, I said this during the week of the fight and it was one thing that I, I was pretty sure was true. And I think after the fight, it's really true on that night. I, I do think gone wanted to win, but that, that night didn't mean as much to him as it meant to Jones. Like that meant a lot to Jones. And I just felt like there was a certain level of intensity that John typically has as a competitor, but really had on that night. Gon didn't have that. Now, not on that night, not to the same degree. Um, so even if there is a question about his athleticism dropping off and then the sort of scary results that might mean for his game, I, I wonder if he's even going to be around for that. You know, and also, was he 32? You know, he if he really if he actually changes course, I think, a little bit and really works on his um craft and also, you know, really building for the long term, whatever, with, that, with what time he has left, he could really stretch it out, I think. But um, yeah, for sure. If you have a lot of your game based on just sort of athletic gifts that make it work when sometimes it probably won't, 
when that even moves a little bit, the results can be there's a better snap. The results could be dramatic. All right. Uh, Luke, I know uh, Alex Pereira is a huge middleweight, but are some of the rumors that he walks into the cage close to 100 kilograms true? Probably. Is he weighed about 91 kilos against Blahovich? So I assume it's his natural middleweight walk in weight. And whilst Pereira looks, looked bigger than Izzy, he didn't look 10K heavier. I'm assuming he could easily get to. Uh, yes, it's true that he didn't look massively bigger than Izzy on fight night. That's true. But your question was, what's the 100 Ks? True. Well, that's a good question. So let me see. That would be, let me get the exact, um, so that'd be 220. No, that's a little much. That, that, okay. That's a little much, but, but I'll tell you this for sure. His walking around weight is 220 plus um off camp off camp in camp no uh off camp i mean guys michael chandler told me he used to get and i think this is even still true so that's a 155er um he is walk around weight outside of camp he told me north of 190 at times north of 190 that's two weight classes less and then they get they lose a bunch of weight and then they get a more through the camp and then they cut the last bit of it it would Walking into the cage at 100 kilos seems a little bit much just in terms of how much biologically you can actually add back in a, in a day or whatever the time frame is. But but do I think he can hit 220 as like a natural walking around weight or even north of that? Sure. Sure. No problem. I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that's crazy at all. All right. Look, with the success of John Jones, DC, and Ryan Bader moving from light heavy to heavy, are there other aging 205 grapplers that would be better served competing at heavyweight? Not the only one, too, right? Sort of a, to a lesser extent, you could throw in uh, Linton Vassell to that. Who's sort of a guy, like the, he fights in Bellator, the Swarm, the British dude, bald. I think he's at Kilcliffe MMA, if I'm not mistaken. I think I saw him last time I was there. Um, he was a guy who had light heavyweight, had some wins, did okay, and then went to heavyweight and was able to really transition his game in a very effective way. I don't know that it dramatically changed his fortunes in that particular case, but certainly he his game did not fall off at all. In fact, I think in some ways it gave his career some longevity and um, it was a better fit for him at that stage of his career. So there's, there's actually a number. You could probably pick some other ones. So let's look at like 205, right? So let's look at the – is there anyone in the rankings at 205, maybe the bottom portion of it? So the bottom portion of it, uh, let's see, Khalil Roundtree, Dustin Jacoby, Jimmy Crute, Dominic Reyes, Paul Craig, who's Demir Span, Walker, Krilov Smith, Smith's former middleweight. You know, there's a question about like Rakic. Rakic is a huge 205er, maybe, but like he's obviously still very relevant at 205. So that uh, that doesn't seem to me like a move he necessarily needs to make. Remember, um, in the case of DC. I don't know about Vassell since he's British, but in the case of DC and Bader, obviously we're talking about two former collegiate wrestlers, John Jones to an extent there in that situation as well. Um, so you don't really have that kind of thing going on at light uh, heavy. I'm trying to think of someone outside of that that would be like noteworthy that I can think of. No, not really. Um, maybe there's someone in Bellator's 205 division um, beyond what Bader's already doing. No, there's nothing. There's no one else that really immediately stands out, at least from this list. I'm, I'm not thinking of a name, I'm sure, but... Um, no, but you can see that like if you're a if you're a good sized like if you could play tight end in American football and you're a but you 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 know you're you've gotten down to 205 and you have a wrestling background. Well, I got to tell you, 
heavyweight can be a great fit for you, a really great fit. And I think to your point, like we always talk about, I mean, I think, um, excuse me, Ryan Bader was asked, like, how do you think John Jones is going to do? And Bader was like, yeah, he's going to do well. He's going to do well. He was right. He was real right. You know, I think he understood that there's a lot of speed advantages. Like go back and watch Bader's run through the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. And again, he had to fight King Mo, who was at once a middleweight. He had to fight Fedor, who was long in the tooth. And then Mitrione, who's not necessarily known as like a super sturdy wrestler. But just look at the speed difference and the physicality difference. Like, they could do nothing to him. He bulldozed that tournament. He ran right through it like it was nothing. I'm not even sure they landed a punch on him outside of maybe a couple of shots that Mitrione was able to fire. You know, it really, really, really was a huge advantage. All right. Luke, as a Brazilian fan, I was really frustrated with the way the 283 crowd treated uh, Moreno and Glover. However, I do think that there's also some promotional practice regarding the Brazilian MMA culture. What do you think the UFC can do differently so Brazil can go back to being a successful market as it was in the early 2010s, like Australia and UK right now? I don't think Bellator, excuse me, I don't think Brazil is suffering in any kind of noticeable way. The title seems to change hands enough where that's a big deal. Uh, how many Brazilian champs do we have? None in the first row. You have one in the second row two in the second row and then that's it so you got two brazilian champs i think there's three americans yeah i mean i'm not i, I understand the nature of the question but um listen maybe, maybe they could put a performance institute down there but like it's clear to me that the contender series for all the problems with the contender series what it basically has become is a funnel system not really to like attract talent but they're doing a pretty good job of in my judgment um you know there's a lot of people who come through contender series who are really going to have no future at all in the ufc even when they get the contract but it's also like the, the weird part about contender series is it's not, I mean, there's blue chip guys going through there too, right? It's not, it, it, there's a lot of chaff and some wheat, um, but there's a lot of wheat. There's enough of it to matter. Like the Bonfim brothers coming through contender series. This is sort of what I'm talking about. Finding the next generation, spotlighting them with their promotional, um, with their infrastructure that they have to do that getting them out there into fights. I think they fought at 283, if I'm not mistaken. Both of them did. Both of them had tremendous wins. And then setting up the next thing. Like, Brazil is just a powerhouse for MMA. I don't know how much more you can prime that pump to get it going. And the places where they're putting up the, um, like, the performance institutes, like China and now Mexico City. Now, Mexico City and Mexico in general are certainly further along in MMA's development by virtue of how many champions they have relative to China. But it still is a market where you have, you know, a lot of... Um, underserved athletes who I think from the UFC's perspective could really benefit from uh, having this institute down there where, you know, uh, yes, some people who come through there will never make it to the UFC or be very good in UFC, but all they really need to do is find two or three, four, five, if they can find five, you know, elite fighters out of five years to come out of there, um, that almost in a way, I won't say pays for itself, but it really, it, it can dramatically boost their overall fortunes. So they're priming the pump in areas that still can, can I think, meaningfully benefit from that. Brazil is so far along and has such a rich tradition and has already has a lot of gyms, a lot of world-class instructors, some world-class facilities, you know, obviously in terms of the depth of talent, they've got them from heavyweight all the way down to flyweight. I mean, it's one of the things about Brazil that's sort of really unique and interesting to me is you know you take it for granted that uh, obviously the america is what 330 million people you're going to get all walks of life and all different kinds of athletes and all different kinds of um uh, heights and ages and and uh, genders and all that kind of stuff right you're going to get just a, a a wide menagerie of different types of people that's not true for every country's profile like 
if you 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 will get some heavyweights in Japan, but you know they're going to be you're going to get much more sub one fifty five or sub one seventy, you know that kind of a thing, right? There's a certain countries' profile. Same with Mexico, like which is why Kane being a heavyweight uh, was really kind of uh, you know a really important thing for the time in which they were trying to present it because that's just a, such a rare rare thing to get that right. You just don't have um, the 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 physical profile of the of the typical athlete who might be attracted to what you're doing. It's just going to be they're going to be smaller in general. Brazil doesn't have that problem at all, right? You get elite Brazilians from 125 all the way to heavyweight on the men's side and on the women's side. Two of the best women's fighter women's fighters of all time women fighters of all time, excuse me, are Brazilian, and you know there's more on the way, uh, and they are they're all in all over Bellator, they're all over one, they're all over UFC, like they're all over Bellator, like. Dude, Brazil is, you know, again, I'm not su suggesting that there's nothing that could be done to improve, uh, but, you know, relative to, like, a, the, the profile of a lot of other countries, Brazil is very advanced and very good, and there'll be ebbs and flows in terms of exactly what kind of talent will turn into what, and maybe this is more of an ebb than a flow moment, but um, I'm really not too worried about Brazil's participation on the world stage of MMA for the foreseeable future. It seems fairly sturdy from what i can tell it's just that they're competing in a much more there's there's a lot more competition than there once was for these top spots like again you know i think there's three american champs now that won't last for very long one of them two of them all of them are going to get shuffled out eventually and some probably sooner than that they even realize um but brazil is in a pretty good shape is in pretty good shape uh luke Shavkat Rachmanov is looking like the real deal Holyfield as of late. There's been a few names mentioned that he should fight next, but if you want a championship litmus test, Gilbert Burns is the best one for Shavkat. Assume Burns blows through Masvidal and they make that fight next. How do you see the Burns matchup going? Great question. Because obviously we saw Burns is amazing. I think some folks thought he was going to be done after the Hamzat fight. Boy, that was mistaken. He ran right through Neil Magny like it was nothing. Um, the only challenge to that could be Two things. One, they're they're semi teammates. Uh, I know I've talked to Gilbert specifically about training with Shavkat. Um, they're you know I don't know if they're like best friends, but they are friends. They are training partners. They do like each other. That could potentially be a stumbling block. The other part is while Shavkat has made a name for himself, if you're Burns and you already fought Hamzat, and by the way, there are people out there who think that he beat Hamzat. Like it was, you know, Burns gave it to him. Make no mistake about it. Um. He probably is looking for a if he beats Masvidal, and I know what you're gonna say. It's like, well, does beating Masvidal get you a title shot? But it's like it's not, it's less about that. And if you're Burns, he's like 35, 36, something like that. He's he's probably looking for like a really big opponent after that, the winner maybe of uh, from Edwards and Usman or something like that. And obviously, Gilbert would be a fresh challenger for Leon. They've never fought. Obviously, we've seen what happened between Usman and Gilbert. Um, if that's what they have to go, they can book a rematch. But I think he's probably not going to want to look back, especially like, you know, what's the upside in fighting Shavkat? Like, it'd be great for me. It'd be great for you. But it's a really tough opponent. And that might get you a title shot. But if you might be able to, like, get one based on some other kind of division need, what, why would you risk it? So there's a couple of ways in which that could get tripped up. But I do agree um, that'd be a really great fight to make. I don't think it's the only fight you can make, but it definitely is a good one. Um, I'd be okay if Rachmanov even fought Wonderboy, to be honest with you. Like, there's some issues I think he needs to iron out that a good opponent like that 
for whatever state, whatever, whatever's left of his game, I still think it's enough to give Rachmanov some problems. Now, once Rachmanov locks up with him, I think that begins to change it. But at distance, you guys saw what happened. Like he walks into I, I did a if you guys haven't seen, I did a big tape study right here on this personal channel. If you if you're new, um, that that came out what day is it today? Thursday when I came out late Tuesday. God, I wanted to cry. I was so pissed about how long YouTube YouTube took about four hours to render, or I should say process that video. I wanted to die. Anyway. Neither here nor there. Um, he walks right into range, um, especially mid-range, where he just keeps his head. Uh, that's not true. At, at mid-range, he does have some head movement. At close range, um, or walking right into range, he sometimes does it. But if he's sort of naturally already there, he can show some slipping, some ability to get off the center line, which is not so bad. The issue is the wrestling, I think, would become a problem. Um for him that that because Gilbert's got really good defensive wrestling I don't know if he could get it down the question to me would be size and frame and how much he could so going back to what Shafkat does really well pushing everything against the fence line why is that important we talked about it in the breakdown one thing was he just wanted to disrupt um the stance and the the, the rhythm and the flow of a guy like Neil by pushing into him constantly, kneeing him to the body, making him clinch, making him retreat, getting him out of his position, moving him around the cage where he can't just set up and then flow from here, right? He has to constantly wrestle and then move away. So that's a big part of it. But what he really wanted, and this is where he really is quite gifted, is moving the fight to the fence line because he does have trips and throws from there. He's got a good Uchimata from there. But what he really likes to do is just begin to fence wrestle and then find interesting ways to lock up with you. And I mentioned on the video, I didn't even know. You go back and look at that rear naked choke. It's on the left side. He gable grips it here. Yeah, he had this palm down, I think, right? Or I have to go back and look. I think he had this palm down, uh, the, the choking palm down. And uh, then he laced the leg over the top on the inside. I didn't, I, in real time, I didn't quite know what he was doing. And then Henry Gracie pointed out it was because he was trying to prevent the inside slip of the shoulder to prevent rotation. Stepping across like that froze him. But the only way you would really know something like that is if you've done it on the fence line multiple times to other sparring partners or, or you know, whatever. Like, you, you had to try that. Off. You can't just make – you could. It's highly unlikely he made that up on the fly. It's something he probably has done before and knew he could get to. By the way, everything comes from the left underhook, right side collar tie. We talk about that as well, which is what set that choke up as well. And then also go back to where he has the wrist grabbed on the opposite side from Neil Magny, reaches across his own, reaches across Neil Magny's belly for the other hand, knowing Neil Magny is going to sit up and pull his hand away. Well, if your hand is covering your belly and then you move your hand away, what's covering your belly? Nothing. So then Rachmanov fires a super hard knee right up the middle and lands absolutely flush and folds uh, Jeff Neal temporarily for just a minute, like really stuns and hurts him. It's like he's got a ton of tricks along that fence line how familiar with them would gilbert be if they if they fought would he know what to look for there's going to be some familiarity with the game there too so that's a real big that's a huge step up for a guy like rachmanov rachmanov walks into range a guy like gilbert does have good timing although there would be something of a height and reach disadvantage um rachmanov has loose finishing on leg attacks i think that would prove devastating against a guy like gilbert uh he is however a savage he will walk right into you um, he does have some good boxing at angles, which I think would be kind of interesting. He's got a unique set of subs. So that's a really tough fight for Rachmanov that I'm not sure he's fully ready for or even will get, but it would be a hell of a test. And certainly if Rachmanov can beat Gilbert Burns, then, you know, if you beat, in my judgment, you could have like 
0-10, you know what I mean, on your record. And then if you're 11th fight, you fight Gilbert Burns and you win cleanly, it's like, okay, you're ready for a title shot. Like, you're just not going to beat Gilbert Burns at this stage uh, unless you're ready to fight the very, very, very number one or number two guy, like, period. And then Gilbert Burns has a claim to being the top contender in certain ways. Um, again, not based off of the Neil Magny win by itself, uh, but um, if Hamzat is out of the division because he's at 185 and it, it actually elevates Gilbert's position and blah, blah, blah. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like, that's a tough fight for Rachmanov. I don't, I, if I were him, I would wait a little bit. That's a tough fight. Uh, Luke, given how Dana White talks about doing a UFC event in Africa, where would be the most practical location in Africa to hold an event? Let's say Izzy beats Pereira and Drigas Duplessis wins his next fight. Would it make sense to do Izzy Duplessis next in Africa? Uh, I, I suppose you could do that. Both were born there with Duplessis accusing Izzy of being a fake African. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you. I got to tell you, man. Like, listen. Listen. I no one gives a shit about whether I think someone is or isn't African. And I don't even know how to even properly start a conversation that way. What I can tell you is uh, if you were born in Africa because you are a descendant of people who are natively from there, I'm going to call you African. Now, certainly I would call Drickus Duplessis African as well, right? South African is where he lives in South Africa, right? Um, so yes, of course, he would certainly qualify at this stage. Uh, and I think it's important that I, I do mean this gen genuinely, but um, it is important that I think all different kinds of people, because by the way, there's people think about Africa as being like a place as the continent of, you know, uh, predominantly, if not exclusively black people. And of course there are many different kinds from East Africa, all the way to West Africa. And even along West Africa, all many different kinds, like Africa is an extremely diverse place just within its black populations. But of course there's a lot more there than just that. There are obviously the remnants of, um, you know, settlements and colonialization all through, Africa in terms of both language and people. And then beyond that, the Arab North, right? I mean, from Morocco, Morocco, Algeria, Egypt, Libya, on and on. Um, so there's, when we say Africa, we're talking about a lot of very, very different kind of people. And again, I don't know what the answer is in terms of like, what's the best place to go to represent Africa? I couldn't, I couldn't possibly tell you that. I'm going to guess based on UFC's needs, they're going to want to hear. So one of the issues with Brazil in the earlier years when they couldn't really go back. I talked to, who was it? Um, it was a guy who ran Fight Pass for a while and some other promotions. I forget his name. But he was telling me one of the issues was um, a lot of the, when they first began to have ideas about going back to Brazil in a very steady way, some of the venues just weren't ready for primetime. They weren't even wired for broadcast. Right? They couldn't even get a television signal out of there if they wanted to. Um, and so that was a big problem. That was a really big problem for them. But I think that's changed a lot. So the question you have to ask yourself is where could they go where they could sell at a reasonably high ticket price with a modern venue that would also fulfill whatever promotional needs about some kind of um, celebration of fighters from Africa? Like where could they go for that? I, I really don't know. Because honestly, you know, listen, if you're the descendant of people of settlers and colon uh, colonizers and you're telling... <laughs> And you're telling people uh, who whose people who were born there and whose people are from there natively that they're not really African. I think you should probably pump the brakes on that. You know, I think I like I like Sadiq Yusuf's point. It's like Sadiq's like I'm not even saying that Tricus Duplessis is not African. He he certainly is. You're just not going to tell me I'm not. It was sort of his point. 
uh, that seems reasonably fair to me, you know, or certainly people of African descent and what claim they have. It all gets kind of messy. Like even with my daughter, what is she? Well, she's obviously American, but at some point she'll probably have dual citizenship. My hope is that she speaks without an accent. Um, half of her family is in one continent. Half of her family is in another. What is she? You know, okay, she's American, but you know, that it, it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you the full story. I don't know that she'll ever be fully accepted by Colombia. I guess time will tell. I suspect that that probably won't happen, but certainly her family loves her very much, and Colombians have been very nice to me, so I have some hope. But just speaking realistically, there's always going to be people who are going to call her a gringa. It's just the reality. And even here, you know, I can only imagine what will when her her when she gets a wider perspective of the world and she understands it in both terms. You live in two worlds at the same time, and it can be disorienting because you live in both of them, but neither of them, right? Um, you are at once American or Korean, American or Chinese, American or Colombian, American or Dominican. But if you live here and not there, even though you have ancestors there or even direct family there, there becomes a question of like, are you fully one or the other? To me, the answer is you are. Uh, somebody who, child of an immigrant who was, you know, uh, sort of see some of these things and these challenges and what it means to be those things. I just feel like when you begin to tell people I am and you're not, um, that's when the problems begin to emerge, but we shall see. We shall see. What? Uh, I recall. BC, uh... Okay. I don't know what that means. Uh, good question. Actually. I like this. Luke, does the return of the XFL and the DC defenders do anything for you? I wish it did. Personally, I love the league and can't wait to see it continue to succeed. If you guys have not been paying attention, XFL is back. And uh, the D.C. Defenders is the local team. This is the resurrected league. Obviously, it, it, the initial one was with uh, Vince McMahon, and it came back, I don't know, maybe five years ago or something like that, six years ago, whatever it was. And then they went out of business during the pandemic or right before it, something like that. And then this is the resurrected triple, the, the third iteration of the XFL. And the D.C. Defenders play at Audi Field, which is where the D.C. United play. It's a decent stadium for a soccer field in the United States anyway. Um, and... Um, and they do good numbers there. They do good numbers on the ratings, I believe, but certainly in attendance, they've hit fifteen to 17,000 there for, you know, we're talking guys who are, by NFL standards, largely scrubs, right? So I'm not trying to be demeaning. I'm just saying that's the, that's the level of play we're talking about here relative to the highest one you can get here. And the fan base has started something called the beer snake, where in one of the sections, they'll get a, you know, a big pint of beer out of a plastic cup, and then they all stack their cups. And this will go from like the bottom tier of the seats all the way to the top. And the, the, the goal every game is to get the beer snake as long as you can make it. And recently they were, the staff was trying to take it away and there was a movement to bring it back. And like, there's actually a real community of people who actually really like the DC defenders. And I'll tell you what, I'll give credit to uh, Grant Paulson of 106.7 The Fan. He made a point is that uh, uh, spontaneously at the last D.C. Defenders game, I think it was at home, yeah, it was at home, because a chant broke out of fuck Dan Snyder. Fuck Dan Snyder. <laughs> right? Just randomly. There's so many people, so many people burned, disaffected, gone from the Commander's fan base by virtue of how horrifically Dan Snyder has run that team that they're just looking for any other kind of like non-sad community for football and the dc defenders actually give a great one to the ones who go the problem for me man is you know and listen i'm not i'm not telling anyone who likes to go to defenders games not to go i'm not i have nothing bad to say about the community in fact i think it's a pretty cool community i think it's really awesome what they're doing i really like to see it but yo the rock is associated with this and after all his bullshit he pulled 
with his shoe in the UFC, it put a real bad taste in my mouth. I just can't, I can't support anything he's attached to if I have a choice about it. You know, I'll tell you what, man. The remember when he responded to me on Twitter because because he that this deal came out, it was announced, and it turns out that the shoe was sent to members of the staff, pictures of the shoe. But and the he puts out this thing like this announcement on Twitter saying, uh, you know, this deal has been struck and, you know, this is for the guys who walk the walk. And, um, but there was no image of the shoe. And I'm like, it's, I just tweeted, it was like a little weird that there's no image of the shoe. And he was like, nothing weird about it. His argument was, there's nothing weird about it. This is not about the shoe. It's about the celebration of the athletes. Yo, Rock, get the fuck out of here, guy. Get the fuck out of here with this bullshit. That might work in corporate meetings with other fucking dullards who don't know better. You know, what a ridiculous statement. Here's a general rule of thumb for everyone out there. If somebody wealthy is describing someone, uh, I won't say beneath them as people, but beneath them economically, or some, certainly someone that's supposed to be um, inheriting some of that wealth or, or being paid, if they describe them as in like these really lofty terms, like these are for the heroes that walk the walk, for the for the true men and women of grit, like these really almost cinematic ways of describing someone, it's a guaranteed lock. They're fucking them on their pay or rev share. <laughs> it's a lock dude. Like no one who is like crazy, well-paid, like you don't call any of those people heroes or, you know, you know good guys or pillars of the community it's like you're so you get paid well enough like that just takes care of it it's the people that you like the nurses or teachers or as we call them all these like great titles but you just you don't pay them shit in the end i saw a professor talk about this I forget his name i'd love to cite it but i cannot remember who it was and it really rang true it really rang true it's so true like that whole thing he put out being like, wow, these are the ones who walk the walk. And then you didn't ensure that they got a cut of that deal in the end. Yo, like that's why you made that highlight reel. That's why they, he said all those nice things. It's because <laughs> when it came time to share the dollars, he wasn't about it. So I, I feel the same way about his products. How many hours do you week, work a week on average? I've lost count. I worked. I, I I saw two friends of mine last night, and the first thing they said when I when I saw them because I had to meet them and I was late because I was coming from work. They told me I work too much. That probably is true. Probably is true. I, I I don't even know when I don't work anymore. Like, it's just. And every time I dial it back, I'm like, okay, this I'm going to keep this. You know, I'm going to keep this level. Like, I didn't want to work on Tuesday, but I had to get the video up. You know, like to because I really want to do that kind of stuff. But you know. It just is not in the cards. Okay, so this came up. I'm glad you're asking it because it gives me a chance to do this over a little bit. Luke, who do you think had to beat the toughest opponent to become a champ in two divisions? Let me back up a step here and say something. So on Monday, caught me by surprise, which is why I did such a shitty job of it. Um, we had a debate on on morning combat. Well, I didn't even know it was going to be one, but we had a conversation that I thought we were going to have on MK about Jones versus GSP. And in the end, BC and I were in basically the same place, which was that we thought in the end, the, 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 the full scope of John's work and success to me is slightly better. Again, listen to the words I'm saying, slightly better than what GSP has done. We are talking about 
just extremely accomplished fighters, right? So we are, you know, there, there are some differences and it's okay to point them out, but let's be clear, we're nitpicking greatness here. That's just what we're doing. But he asked me a question and I had such a terrible answer on Monday, which was, he was like, because my argument was, I think John is better, or John, excuse me, I think John's claim to being the best ever is stronger to me. And the reason why, here was my argument. This part, I don't think I botched, but the other part, I, I certainly did. The argument, very quickly, is that let's assume just for the sake of argument, you want to grant that GSP's resume in terms of the strength of schedule is better than John's, right? Let's just assume that that's true. It may not be true in your mind. But let's assume for the sake of argument that it's true. The problem is GSP has a loss to Hughes, which is understandable. It was early in his UFC run. Fine. I don't really judge that one too much against him, although he did get finished. Um, and then the Sarah one, though, that's the problem, right? Because that was a great win by Sarah. Uh, but he couldn't reproduce it. And more to the point, if you're looking at GSP's resume and you're saying, who are the very elite wins that that you that maybe in, in the overall scope of things, John doesn't have as many of those. You would not necessarily include Matt Sarah. I don't think you would include Matt Sarah in the list of more elite wins. Now, in the list of like really important St. Pierre fights, that rematch was huge. So it's not to say that that win by, by Matt Serra was a fluke. I don't think it was a fluke. We've talked about that. I remember where I was when that fight happened in 2007. I was at Hard Times Cafe in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I remember exactly where I was. The idea is that if you flip the coin 100 times, you know, 50% of the time it's going to come up heads. The other 50% it's going to be tails. But it could be that for the first 25, it always comes up heads. That is mathematically possible. Or, you know, even if it's 100 to 1. So you flipped it 100 times. Uh, if you have a one in 100 chance, whatever the th thing is, it doesn't mean that the first time couldn't be the one where it is that chance, right? You, you don't have to have all 99 things happen the other way for the hundredth to go the other. It could happen the first one. It could happen the 50th one. It could happen the 72nd one. It could happen at any point. And for me, the Sarah beating uh, GSP is sort of like that. Like it's a fair win. It's a legitimate win. It's just not one he can reproduce over time because there is a skill gap. So it's a very important chapter in St. Pierre's career, but it's not one of his more elite wins. And my point is he got iced by that guy. He got iced by that guy to the point where GSP was tapping to strikes. Now, GSP obviously avenged that loss, but the point being is even if you wanted to grant that, that GSP's resume is somewhat better, the fact that he has that loss against that kind of opponent on his record, John doesn't have anything fucking close to that. Not, not, not like that. Not like that. You might be like, well, what about disputed decisions? First of all, Let's be real. Hendricks beat GSP. Sorry, I thought Hendricks won that one, just like I thought Reyes beat uh, uh, John. So those two kind of cancel each other out. Uh, now, where are we? We're still at the same kind of place where it's like, what, it, what on John's record is as bad as that? Nothing. There's nothing on there that even comes close. And to me, it's not like I judge GSP harshly and negatively long term. He's still, you know, at worst, two or three in my, in my book all time. Again, highly accomplished. Just not that. Now, the part that I radically fucked up, and I'm going to get dead wrong for part of it. One, I said Condit was the first 20-something title holder he uh, fought. Not true. He was, there was two pairs of 20-somethings that John fought. It was Alves Hardy and then Condit um, Diaz. Those are the four 20-year-olds, I believe. There may have been another one, but those are, those are the two pairs of 20-year-olds that he fought in title fights. So I think it was Alves at UFC 100 was actually the first 20-something that he fought. Even then, still pretty lengthy in his career, but I did fuck that up. But then, basically, BC asked me a very sort of straightforward question, which was, well, I think John's strength of schedule is better. Um, 
I don't, I don't agree to the premise. So tell me why GSP strength of schedule is better. And my answer, I, I just wasn't, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes your brain works the way you want it to. And sometimes it doesn't, this one, it just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even get firing on the idea. I think you guys saw that in real time. So listen, you know, you have good days, you have bad days on camera. You just got to live with it. Uh, but it, with a little bit of time to reflect on it, I think the answer for me is not every single fight. But in general, do I think GSP fought tougher guys? I do, right? Here's, here's a great way, to I think, to, to understand it. Look at the wrestling-based guys John has fought. Look at the wrestling-based guys GSP had to fight. Um, not just in title fights, but actually throughout the course of their career. It's hard to argue that John had to face nearly as many wrestling-centric uh, foes. In other words, John could use already his substantial wrestling skills without nearly the same kind of resistance. Why do I say that? Well... Um, so GSP had to fight Frank Trigg, who competed at Oklahoma State, and a lot to actually folks don't realize it's Oklahoma as well. He had to compete against two time, or I should say, at one time, um, out of Edinburgh University, Josh Koshak has a national championship. John Fitch was, um, you know, captain of the Purdue wrestling team. Um, uh, Matt Hughes, two time All American as well. You, you could say, well, DC was a great wrestler, and that's true, but one, he was much older when John fought him, it wasn't nearly as in the same kind of physical condition as he would have been earlier. And more to the point, that's true, but also the DC doesn't have any division one national titles. Now, granted he did lose to Kale Sanderson, who's like arguably the best to ever do it. So, you know, you got to have a little bit of understanding with it, but I'm just pointing out in terms of like folk style, which translates very strongly to MMA, like John has a who Bader DC. Um, you could say Matt Yushchenko, but that, I mean, that was, he was, old when they fought truly that's one of the few guys that like people say like john didn't fight anyone but old guys that's overstated but to the extent that he did matt yushchenko was on that list um and I'm, i might be forgetting brandon vera has something of a wrestling background certainly as well i think he wrestled for odu for a time but i would just argue and i'm not even mentioning sean shirk i'm not even mentioning the takedown defense of bj penn which was the gold standard in the sport at that time just on that consideration alone john doesn't have the nearly in my judgment on that level he doesn't have the same strength of schedule in terms of what the opposition can meaningfully give him in that way. Just on that alone, I could make arguments about other ones as well. From top to bottom, uh, I could go back to Carl Parisian, be sort of an unusual version. That was his Jay Huron wrestled, I think, Division One as well. Like it just goes on and on for GSP's resume in ways where, yeah, at the end he had some Condits and he had some Diaz's who don't have the best wrestling takedown defense, but um, in general. That was a really big hurdle for him to overcome. We always thought like the guy to beat Matt Hughes was going to be like a super version of him, like another stud American wrestler, you know, who could take the Matt Hughes blueprint and just make it a little bit better. And then this Canadian fucking French Canadian guy comes out and is just blowing the doors off of everybody. Obviously, he had their initial loss to Matt Hughes. But I think if you just examine on that account alone, it kind of is emblematic to me about some of the larger challenges that GSP had to deal with that John did not. There have been some gimme fights in either direction. Um, you know, obviously, Chael Sonnen was an easier fight for for Jones. You know, Dan Hardy, I think, was very, very young when they fought, and I don't think was really ready for that fight at that time. Um, so, you know, it, there's there's goods and there's bads. And, and again, I, I also think that people be like, oh, well, John beat a lot of old guys. He beat Rashad at 32, who was a 17-1 record, who just dummied Phil Davis. Like, his 32 to me is still a very serious threat. But um, I do believe that, in general, GSP fought tougher guys, and I think you can look at the threat of wrestling um, 
uh, uh, you know, the sturdiness of how good they're wrestling offensive and deep. Uh, yeah, I didn't mention Sean Shirk and some other ones. It, you know, there's GSP just had a lot more to deal with, a lot more consistently at early, middle uh, stages of his career, less so late, but certainly early and middle. Uh, I think it tells you a lot about what he was up against. Uh, there's another question about GOAT from Monday. I'm going to move on. It's a good question. I apologize. I just want to move on to something else because I know I went too long on that one. Uh, let's see. Okay, good question. I like this one. Would you say Fernando Lopez has produced two of the least prepared male title challengers in the modern era? Gone versus Jones and Ngannou versus Stipe. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. Um, listen, I've talked to Fernand Lopez. Um couple times uh i had to do it <laughs> so if you guys notice tuki has a scar on her forehead um our nanny at the time um got a phone call when she was with my daughter at the park that her father had died and she collapsed and violetta saw it and came running over and then ran into something and it cut her on the forehead we had to take her to the hospital like literally when she came home and i saw this giant gash on my daughter's forehead um, I was supposed to do an interview with Fernand Lopez and I had to explain to him what was happening. He was extremely understanding and very kind. He followed up to make sure my daughter was okay. Like just the kindest thing. I really appreciated that. So I, I do not wish to speak ill of the man, but I will say just from a professional evaluation standpoint, it's one thing for Francis to go out there and shit the bed in his first fight against Stipe, but then for Gon to do it this many years later against a guy like Jones and Jones is a different threat than Stipe, but to be, I mean, woefully unprepared for major title fights from the same camp. They're both heavyweights. It's a problem. Yeah, it's a real big problem. It'd be one thing if, like, both guys had, like, so-so performances or, you know, neither guy won, but you can hold, you know, tip your cap to him. Like, these are all-time awful performances. And Ngannou wasn't even right after this performance. He fought Derek Lewis and it looked bad. Let's even see what Gon looks like next time. We haven't even talked about this. Yeah, that was a different fight, right? In the sense that uh, that fight with Stipe went the full five and and Francis got kind of beat up for large stretches of it and controlled and gassed out. That will do things to you mentally that a quick loss may not. But the embarrassment from this, I wouldn't write off immediately. I'm not, I'm not wishing this on him. I hope everyone understands that. But just sort of realistically, like realizing as an athlete how terribly unprepared you might, you, you now, I mean, it was child's, it was child's play. This is what happens when someone brings in someone off the street against like a good purple belt in in the training room. That's what it looks like. They just get their whole thing. They just get all their defenses immediately shredded. Like everything John, basically everything John went for worked. Every step he took, every position he established, gone gotten like gone got never got anything back. <laughs> you ever notice that? Like. It's one thing like, oh, he gets taken down and he's in side control, but the guy underneath captures full guard. He gets, he recaptures full guard and now he's working. This is a small but important detail to note their resiliency underneath, that that actually does matter. He didn't get any of that. You, you got nothing. He, everything John did had no answer. Uh, and I guess he couldn't get the choke the first time, but he went right back to it. I guess, okay, that. But short of that, like there was just no educated resistance. There's... There's like, you don't want a white belt spaz, right? Where you're just like flailing and shit like CM Punk was doing, where you're creating all this room. You don't want to do that. 
you want to have educated responses, but you can see what Gon was up against. He knew he couldn't just spaz his way out of shit. That's a bad idea. But he actually didn't know what the path needed to be to meaningfully counteract everything John was doing. There was no educated response to any of it. That's the exact same problem that Francis had. Francis had no educated response to anything Stipe was doing. He just had big power, which is legitimate, but not certainly in that fight, not enough, not enough. Yes, his his guys look unprepared to me, especially in the grappling. Maybe not so much in some of the other things. I guess we'll have to see going forward. But um, yeah, it's I, I normally am. You guys know, like I get a lot of questions like, should this guy switch camps? Should that guy switch camps? And normally I'm like, I don't know, man. There's not enough information to declare. And maybe that's true here too. I don't know that. But I don't see how you can get two performances like this from the same gym, from the same weight class, without being able to say there's probably something really wrong with the developmental program there for the guys of this caliber. Francis, um, look at the look at the changes he's made, and honestly, um, I think gone. I think gone has some serious questions he needs to start asking himself. Good question. Do you think boxing should update their press conferences to be more similar to the UFC's press conference? Fuck no. I feel like more often than not, I have to swim through a flood of salesman lines. That's true. Just to get to hear the fighter speak. Once they do, they get asked a few of the most vanilla questions. True. A painful example was yesterday and how Garcia and Tank had a lot to say to each other, but it was the face-off that had no audio. Oh, there'll be some audio of it. I mean, there was there was cameras recording everything. Don't worry. Curious to hear your thoughts because I usually tune out of boxing pressers compared to usually watching any UFC presser. I'd copy stuff like not hearing from coaches and having media ask questions, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, media ask bland questions too. Okay, fair enough. Okay, I, I really don't like the UFC's press conferences for two major reasons. One, and I've said this before, it sounds like I'm beating up on the fans. I'm not. I think if you're going to invite the fans, it's by definition not a press conference. It's not for the press. It's got nothing to do with the press. It's got shit all to do with it. It's got everything to do with the audience. So let them ask questions. Oh, but then you have to screen them. Great, great. But if you want the fans there and the whole idea is to be rowdy and fun and it's for a little bit of selling the pay-per-view, then that's who should be asking questions, not media, number one. If it's for a press conference, then it had to look like what yesterday was, which where it's not open to the public and the media get to ask questions. Although I'm not even sure if they, I think it was just Brian Custer who asked questions. I, 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 that's not a Showtime call, by the way. That's whoever was promoting it. So GTD, TGB, and then there's like a third one. I think, oh yeah, Golden Boy. That's their call. That's their call on whether or not like the media gets to ask questions or whoever. They just, they just do that. So whatever. Um, I will say, yeah. Having to hear from every coach and having to hear from every, you know, everyone in the crew. Yes, I don't need to hear that. That part could go. But I don't like how the UFC makes the media basically act as like cheerleaders at a pep rally for the fans and the sport. That's not what their role is. I don't I don't care for that at all. And the second part is like when Danny gets up there and it's quick and it's efficient. I like that part. But. It's also like a very strong way of being like, you know who doesn't matter? Managers. You know who doesn't matter? Advisors. You know who doesn't matter? Coaches. Like, I like hearing from coaches. You might say, well, then put them on a separate press conference. Agreed, but that's what boxing does. For Mayweather-Pacquiao fight week, there was the press conference with the fighters, and then Freddie Roach and Floyd Sr. had their own press conference. And boy, that might have been the best among them. 
Floyd Sr. still had a little bit of gift of gab at that time. Um, maybe that was the the last stretch of it, but they do that. They do that. So I don't think either side has it fully figured out. I think that for me personally, something a little bit closer to the middle where you do get some other folks on stage who might have some interesting perspectives or you have a separate press conference for them. Um, but you do cut out some of the, you know, um, you do cut out, you get, you get right the equation between who should be asking questions, whether it's media or fans. Um, I think you have to pick one. And if it's going to be fans, then just call it the fan, like the fan conference, the fan media conference, like whatever, 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 come up with a name. You, I'm sure that they're clever enough to do that. Um, but just, it's, it's just by definition, not a press con. It's not a press conference. It's not what that is. All right. I've seen Usman Nurmagomedov as a minus 2,500 favorite and Benson at plus 1,100. I'm a huge believer in Usman. He's great. But do you think those odds are way too high for Usman? Yes. I, I'm fucking shockingly high. I think he will win, but those odds are almost unheard of in MMA at this level. Agreed. They're treating him like he's some fucking scrub. Yo, he's not. And you could say what you want about his win over Peter Queeley. It was a good one. It was a good one. And he still showed good timing on that. He still showed lots of good stuff in that fight. Good veteran, savvy, crafty guy. Good cardio. Still a decent chin. It was a good win. I mean, it wasn't a, the most thrilling win, but it was a solid one. It was, and it was, and by the way, convincing. And I don't think he's going to beat Usman Nurmagomedov, but to treat it like, dude, these are odds you would give to like, you know, some boxing prospect who's just fighting some fucko cab driver on the on the undercard, way at the bottom of the undercard or something. Like, nah. U Usman should win and may even win by finish. But at plus 1,100? Yeah, that's that seems a little crazy. All right, I'll answer it because um, it's relevant. Luke, I watched... Oh, God, Jesus. I, there we go. I watched the Paul Craig RSD great stuff. Yes, it is. And I'm curious about your reaction to the P.F. Chang's comment he made. You obviously roll with the punches when BC makes a reference, blah, blah, blah. Does it bother you that there seems to be a large crossover between your fan base and the TFATK subreddit? You and Brendan are obviously friends, so it does feel weird to be embraced by a community that hates them. I, I don't know how much exactly I can say I've been embraced. Um, you know, I was not aware of it for a really long time and then uh, became aware of it. And now I'm like, you know, I try to, this is what I told BC, man. This is what I told BC. Listen, I think if you try to control the internet or you try and like stomp your feet or pout or accuse those people of something, your message is definitely not going to get heard and it's just going to backfire completely. And, you know, no one is above being made fun of on our show, by the way. Not me, not BC, not people I like. I mean, okay he can't be making jokes about my wife and kid or whatever, but short of that, basically anything's up for grabs. And that's why we make fun of each other all the time. Like we're not better than being made fun of. And Brendan, who I care a lot about, he's not better than being made fun of on the show either. Like no one in that sense is above it. Um, and so my attitude towards it all is you can't control it. Not trying to control it, not trying to even rage against it. The internet's going to do what it's going to do, but I just, you know, to the extent possible, it's his thing and not mine, you know, uh, just, you know, <laughs> I just want to stay out of it. I just want to stay out of it. That's, I, I think that's a, I hope anyway, I hope that's a reasonable conclusion. You know, um, 
I don't know if it is. I, it is awkward. It is a little weird. But at the same time, what am I going to do? I'm going to tell BC you can't make jokes about people? Like, yes, you can. You, I mean, that. The, yes, of course. Fucking of course you can. Like, of course you can. If we're going to make fun of each other, we can make fun of people in our orbits too. Like, you know, nothing is off limits. I can't go in there and be like, this is off limits. That's the worst thing I could do. So you just got to learn to live with it a little bit. Um, and I do. I just learned to live with it. And I I don't know what else to do, you know, because I, I think outright prohibition. I, first of all, I can't even, like, BC is a grown man and my partner. Like, we're editorially, like, we're 50-50 on this. Like, I can't tell him what to do anyway. Now, he's a, he's a good guy and amenable to, you know, there's been times where he's come to me and been like, I don't think this is a good idea. And I've, there's been times I've gone to him and like, I don't think this is a good idea with various other things. Like he listens, but, and I think he's heard me say like, you know, I do, this is a friend, you know, like there should be some level of guardrails around, um, around that. But as a general rule, anybody can catch a stray on this show. Anybody, anybody. And, uh, you know, as long as, as long as, uh, <laughs> As long as the drive-by is hitting enough people, like we're not just targeting, you know, this or that all the time and uh, leaving, you know, blind spots, then I, I just kind of, I just live with it. I just live with it. So it's going to be what it's going to be. It's going to be what it's going to be. I just don't, I feel like trying to meddle here would only make it worse. Um, so, you know. The only thing I get, uh, uh, the only thing I would say, whereas if like if he's done like, okay, here's the other part. Upwards of fifty percent of the references, I don't even get. Like someone has to explain to me later. Apparently that I, you know, remember that day when we said this and you missed that, and I'm always like, that's another fucking reference. There's a million fucking references apparently that I'm not aware of. So the other part is that like I'm not even I'm not even aware of half the time he does it. But like sometimes I'll catch like three in a show and then I'm like, all right, you had your fun. It's time to move along. And he usually complies. He gets it. You know, everyone gets a whack at the stick and then we move on to the next thing. As long as it's that, like no one is above being made fun of on, on MK. Nobody, not the two hosts, not the producers, not, not the companies we work for nothing. Like everyone, everyone is a target. So. I think once you accept that, it becomes a lot easier to just be like, yeah, you know. I think it'd be weird if I was trying to mandate to BC, you can't, you know, you can't make fun of my friends. Yes, you can. Like, yes, you can, you know. Uh, okay, good question here. What are your expectations for one in USA debut? I hope it's successful, man. Cinco de Mayo uh, is when that's going to be. Colorado is the state, and this is important because Colorado's commission has really tried to lean into the idea that an athletic commission can have a different different rule sets for different types of promoters, and that this is a thing where um, it could allow for. Again, I've talked about this before. The UFC, I, so I began covering MMA when MMA was not legal everywhere. They had to go state by state to get it legalized, and in that process, there became became this homogeneity through the rule process where all of the rules that were being introduced, some of them had wide applicability, but some of them were very specific to a particular kind of product, one that the UFC had the dominant form of. And so one had, or I forget who actually did the lobbying, but 
eventually Colorado said, listen, we're going to keep the unified rule on the books for whatever promoter wants to do that. Like we're not going to get, we're not going to get rid of that. Like if UFC comes back to Colorado, we'll use the 10 point must system and the unified rules of mixed martial arts done deal. But if a different promoter wants to come that doesn't use those systems and has a different one that we can also, um, sanction with a reasonable de degree of medical and scientific certainty that this is as safe as the unified system. Why wouldn't we? Right. Right. Why wouldn't they? Why, why wouldn't they in that, uh, scenario? Like, why wouldn't they? So I really, really appreciated that because what was the case for a long time was, well, once we adopt these MMA rules per state, like when the Tennessee athletic commission adopts these rules, these are just the rules now for MMA. Like either you're going to comply with these or you're not. And Colorado's approach was to say, right, we're, we don't have a one size fits all model um, from a regulatory standpoint for promotions. We can accommodate different ones. That is a that is a massive mental and regulatory shift in the space that makes it possible to get something. This is what I keep saying to everyone. PFL has a different product than the U UFC. Um, tournament based right? The whole thing, seasons. Bellator has a different product than UFC. They do different tournaments in a different way, but they do them. Product is that they have a rounded cage, right? They do have some different divisions uh, in certain ways, right? They've got a big, um, they're trying to really lean into, for example, women's 145, right? Stuff like that. Uh, so they have a different product as well, but like the most meaningfully different product to UFC among major MMA brands is one not just because they have, you know, grappling and then tie boxing with four ounce gloves. That alone makes them different. But then on top of it, they have a different way of judging fights as a whole. And we've, we've discussed it ad nauseum. That's a meaningfully different product for the fans. It, it is a not the same kind of fight. It's different. Um, we need more of that. We need more of that for sure. Let's see if there's a quick one here. Here's a quick one I'll get you. Do you favor Fazeev or Gaethje in their upcoming fight and why? I favor uh, Fazeev. That's how it's told to me how it's pronounced, by the way. Fazeev is younger. I think he's faster. I think the speed is going to be a big problem for Gaethje. Gaethje hits hard, and Fazeev does expose himself to risk. And obviously, Gaethje's got some skills as well uh, in the stand-up department. And I think it will largely go on that account. But Fazeev just is much more complete. Much more complete. And I think has better in and out movement. I think has better angular movement. Um, and again, the speed and explosivity factor, I just think is going to be a real problem for Gaethje. So we shall see. We shall see. Okay. If you've got a donation, we will take a look at it now. Let's go to the, let's go to the phones. See what you guys have to say. All right. Uh, como anda, Luquito? Two-week vacation got changed a little bit uh, last minute. And I've got three days in Bogota. Any off-the-beaten-path wrecks for food and things to do? Saludos desde el mejor país. Okay, so the answer to this one is yes, but maybe in ways... Let me say one thing first. Yo, Bogota is high as fuck in the sky. It's, it's uh, nearly 8,500 feet. It's up there, okay? And every time I go, I get altitude sickness. They call it soroche there. Every time I go. So here's the first thing I'd recommend. Bring NyQuil or ZQuil with you, something that can help you sleep. Because one of the things that, if you're not used to that altitude, now if you're used to it, forget it. But if you're not used to that altitude, it will fuck you up. And you will not be able to sleep. The other thing, or you can buy the coca tea, which comes from the coca plant, which they actually make cocaine from. You will not, 
you will not get a crazy high from it. It's like drinking tea with a little bit of, you know, it's like drinking green tea. It doesn't do much for you in that sense, but it does help with your stomach and help settle things. Because the last time I went to Bogota, I didn't eat for five days and my family could not figure out what was going on. I just didn't have an appetite. I, they put food in front of me and it was like I had just eaten. I didn't want anything. And then it would come to find out because one of her uncles is a doctor. He's like, oh, yeah, you have soroche. That it can kill your appetite for long stretches. Sure enough, it did. Sure enough, it did. So get something to address the soroche. Drink water on the plane before you land, number one. All right, things to see. There's the gold museum, which does have some pretty interesting artifacts in it, including some like pre-Columbian civilization artifacts. It's pretty interesting there. Um, there's a graffiti tour downtown that is excellent. I don't know who runs it now, but at the time it was run by a Dutch lady. If you're worried about her speaking English and Spanish, she speaks both. I'm sure she speaks Dutch as well, if that's the thing for you. The graffiti tour in downtown Bogota, and it's near, um, actually, excuse me, not downtown. It's near La Candelaria. Uh, it's amazing. There's also a, a near, um, not Los Andes, but um, <sighs> Externado. There's a university at the top of the hill called Exeternado, down the hill in La Candelaria. There's a Botero Museum. Amazing. You certainly are going to want to go to the top of Monserrate and get a view of all of Bogota from up there. It's fucking incredible. You can take this funicular to get up there. It's amazing. Um, and the last thing I'd say is if you can get a little bit of time to get outside the city, you can go see the underground Salt Cathedral in Zipaquira. That place is next level as well. Food. Uh, salvaje. It's a good place to eat. Salvaje, I really enjoyed. Um, what's the other one? The, the Peruvian joint there that's fucking tremendous. Um, Gastrid y, um, Astrid y Gaston is uh, a just like top of the food chain Peruvian joint. Um, there's El Sanguchito in Parque 93. Um, that whole area, in fact. That whole area. And by the way, people always ask, where can you get a good uh, like glass of beer in Bogota? Funnily enough, in a chain store. Like, if you just get Colombian beer, like, don't tell them I said this, but their beer sucks. It's not very good. Like, Aguila and shit like that. It's it's not that money. Uh, <laughs> but if you actually go to a place called Bogota Beer Company, they actually have really good beers there. And they're everywhere throughout the city. It's a chain. Like, you'll see, like, a Hooters and then, like, a, you know, a, a Bogota Beer Company next to each other. Go to the Bogota Beer Company. You will get a very good um, beer there. The one thing about there that sucks is they serve wings at Bogota Beer Company. And they actually, like, every, you know how some wings here, it's like, it's the flat and then the drumstick? The, their flat still has the wing attached every time. It's like, you can pull off the last part. You don't have, okay, but never mind. All right. Neither here nor there. Luke, I believe you say that you thought Dom Reyes should have been the, should have been given the win over Jones at UFC 247. Do you still see him as the GOAT if that decision goes against him? So if he loses that, it does complicate the debate because, again, it really doesn't – my personal belief is that he beat John Jones, but the record says that he doesn't. Ultimately, the record is the only thing that matters. Like what – people think like what you did in the gym, how we interpret it later. No. What happened on fight night? Did you get the W? Did you not? We'll start there. Was it dominant? Was it not? No, this was not. Did you get the finish? Did you not? There's, there's questions that come after that. Everything starts with, was it a W or was it an L? Everything. Everything starts there. And then we can work backwards from there. So it was a W, which changes the conversation. As again, it kind of cancels out the one that I thought GSP got gifted against Hendricks. But if he did actually have a loss, I think that would change the debate a little bit. I don't know. I haven't really given it much consideration. 
about whether that would be disqualifying from being the GOAT. It would certainly complicate it because, again, the thing that John has is that no, he has the, the disqualification against Matt Hamill, but no one ever stuck it to him. No one ever stuck it to him. Um, you change that, it, it changes a lot. It, it could very much, I, I cannot guarantee for you without having given it more thought that it would make him number two, but it, there's a good chance that that's true, yeah. Uh, PSA, nearly all of the realism tattoos you share on IG are enhanced with filters in Photoshop, yes? Stop getting fooled by the internet, old man. Well, most of the ones I share, first of all, are um, American traditional or Japanese traditional. I don't share a whole lot of realism ones. Some of the realism ones, I actually know the creator, and that's not true that they use the you know, Photoshop and filters, but there are some of that's the case, yes. Uh, okay, Luke, have you read uh, Garcia Marquez's 100, year of solitude, 100 Years of Solitude? I have not. I have not. That's some of the great insights and culture. Much love. Hey, somebody from Colombia. Bro, this might be the first guy from Colombia who's ever given me love besides Danny Segura uh, in MMA. Like, dude, they, I, they, I, I, they're they nice to me, but, like, they don't give a shit about the what I do and all that. Like, no, you know, look at my you look at my countries on YouTube, like where stuff comes from. Colombia is, like, dead last. I get no love from there, but so it was nice to see that. Thank you. How about Shavka versus loser of Edwards versus Usman? I take it. I take it. I like that. I think that's right. Again, just getting the title shot. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I need to see a little bit more. Uh, yo, Luke, what division do you expect to be most exciting for the rest of 2023? Bantamweight for sure. And what? Uh, also featherweight. Featherweight. Arnold and Max. The 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 result there is going to be interesting. Volk and Yair, the results that do that, that's a four-man tourney, if you ask me, man. Right? I mean, I know it's not because there's a pecking order and Max has got a bunch of title shots already against the same guy. But, like, if Yair wins and Max wins, you could do the rematch. If Arnold wins and Yair wins, it's a fresh matchup. I suspect if Yair wins and Volk loses, they're going to run it back. But, like, if Yair ends up being the guy in the division, it changes so much. So, like, just how monumental it could be for someone else to take that position is interesting. Or Volt could beat Yair and then go on and move to 155. And there's just a lot of uncertainty right at the top with some old names around there, but not Max is 30, 31, whatever. But there's a lot of change that could, I mean, it's really interesting to watch for me. 155, you know, I care about obviously, uh, but because you have to, but um, I think 145 is the one I got my eye on the most. Also, couple of these guys at 185 especially if Hamzat stays at 185 what that looks like look I'm going to DC Defenders game on Sunday any good suggestions for bars and restaurants in Navy Yard um well you're asking a 43 year old dad who doesn't go to bars all anymore so that's one problem here's what I'll say what is it yellow jacket down there that's a fucking awesome place to go to was that the name of that place let me double check that I think it's yellow jacket uh yellow jacket DC Navy Yard Excuse me, not yellow jacket, blue jacket. I apologize, blue jacket. Blue jacket's cool. Oh, I got your recommendation. How about this one? Love this place at Navy Yard. It's called El Famoso. And everyone's gonna be like, of course you picked the Latin place. Fuck you, it's great, number one. Number two, this is, this is let me tell you folks about El Famoso in Washington, D.C. It's not the only place that does this, not by a million miles, but it's such a perfect textbook example of restaurant efficiency if they want it 
So here's how you order. You sit down. I prefer menus that they hand to you, but you sit down, right? I got my, I got my, uh, I got my knees over toes guy book. Imagine this is my menu. I like the menu, but they don't hand you a full menu. Yeah. You have to scan the app. Okay. So you have to scan the app, but once you scan it, you get the particular menu that pops up on your phone. That's exclusive to your table and everyone else on your table when they get it, it all adds to the same card and the same uh, ticket automatically. You can break it up if you want, but everyone can put it together. It's very easy to pay and sort independently. That's the first part. And so you can just order whenever you want to. Like, I want to order this right now. I want to order this in 10 minutes. I want to order this right before I go. Like, you can just easily, easily do it. It's very fast, very efficient, and reasonably affordable, at least for the neighborhood. But the best part about it is you don't have a waiter, as I indicated. What you have are, instead of waiters, you have people who are just constantly bussing food from the window right? Boom, the state comes up, they're rushing it and they're bussing it. Uh, or excuse me, what do they call it? Expediting. They're expediting the food from the ready stage near the chef's table or whatever to the actual um, where you're sitting. And they're lightning quick with it, right? There's not a waiter going through punching everyone's order into the POS machine and then the ticket comes up in the kitchen and then they run it and then someone else has to grab it because they're over at another four top taking an order and that's just sitting in the window. No, their whole job is just to expedite. And then, of course, they get paid off of tips and then a salary as well. It ends up being that the food is really good. I've never had to wait for a seat. It's right near it's right near the ballpark. It's not far at all, two or three blocks away from the ballpark. And uh, you don't have to fuck with stupid-ass waiters. <laughs> Like, I love going there, getting on my phone, ordering at my own pace, which is quick. And then the food just ah, expedites so fast to you. Fucking great. There, the, I, Every time I go there, I'm like, why aren't more restaurants like this? This seems to me like a vastly preferable method to a waiter who, yes, if you get a great waiter, it's great service. It's awesome. But, you know, you get mostly average waiters and sometimes you get really bad ones and the whole thing can be slow. It's like, where the fuck's my food? And like, this just takes all of that out. All of that out. These people are hustling all the time. Food, your food is always hot when they bring it to you. It's great. El Famoso. Go check that out. What's up, Donk? Love from Uruguay. What's next for Nick Diaz? You see he was talking about fighting Izzy or uh, Pereira? <laughs> I don't know. I don't fucking know. Uh, Luke, I'm getting married. Any tips for couples that train together and have a long, having a long-lasting marriage? We have trained BJJ for years and kids on the way. Tips for becoming a new dad. You're asking a lot here. Um, tips for couples that train together and having a long-lasting marriage. Uh, well, these are very difficult questions. We have trained BJJ for years and kids on the way. Tips for becoming a new dad. Um, you're going to have to give up time on the mats. I'm going to tell you that. Unless you have an extremely accommodating gym that can just do daycare services. Um, so what I would say is, um, Jesus, bro, you're asking a lot. I think the basic thing I can tell you is, in terms of training, you're, it's going to take a hit. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I've seen so many grapplers who have kids. And they're like, yeah, we've already got a schedule worked out. No, you don't. No, you don't. That kid is going to look look at your schedule and then just rip it to shreds and be like re rethink this you can still train a lot but it won't be quite as easy as you might imagine that's the first thing i'd say you just have to bring another life into the world that you are responsible for like it's going to take up time to do um i think the other thing i'd say is um i'm trying to think any other tips 
My wife just went back to training, as you guys know. She's desperately recruiting me. Um, I might. Who knows? Um, yeah, I don't know about the training part. Oh, tips for being a new dad. Uh, here's a book recommendation for you. 12 weeks to 12 hours of sleep. Check that book out on Amazon. Here's what I figured out when I became a dad. I had everyone and their brother send me books or papers on like how to sleep train. And some of them were good. Some of them were bad. But the very best thing I ever read was 12, 12 weeks to 12 hours of sleep. What you must make sure is in the first three months of their life that you set all the things in place that need to be set so that by the time the kid hits the three-month mark, they can sleep through the night. And that, you know, 12 hours is how you get there. If you are not disciplined about their sleep training early, buddy, you're going to fucking pay for it. You're going to pay for it. So what you really want is to get that. And I mean like non-negotiable in the first three months. Like if it's nap time, it's nap time. Like I don't give a shit what else is happening. Leave it. Go. Stick to the schedule. And then at the three-month mark, there are going to be subsequent sleep regressions. They never seem to end. But if you can at least do that and you're active about training, they can get sleep. You can get sleep. And it brings order to your day. So you can, you know, there are always curveballs with kids but it brings a sufficient amount of, of order so that you can actually plan your time more effectively. If you don't and your kid's sleeping this amount here, this amount then, sleeping when they feel like it, napping when they don't, or napping when they're, you know, what on their own whim, it will fuck up your whole day. Don't, don't, don't do that. We didn't do that. We had friends who did that, and we watched what they did to them. And actually, I had a buddy who had three kids. Two of them they did this for. The third one they didn't, and the third one demolished them. They were just so tired by the time the third kid came around, they just kind of punted. They're like, yeah, we've already done it twice. He'll pick it up from the other ones. Nope. Nope. Get that sleep training down. All right. I'm 33 and came out of a six-year relationship last year. Okay. All right. I feel ready to move on to what's next and ideally find a wife. What advice may you have? Go do that shit. 33 is not that old. 33 is not. I got married at 32. But that's not that old at all, um, especially for a guy. You know, it, it shouldn't be different, but societally it can be. So, you know, I recognize that. I'm just saying 33, it's, yeah. Um, dude, you need to just immerse yourself. The thing that people do, like, sometimes miss a little bit is that um, if you're with someone for a long time, you you might have a lot of the same community and the same habits and sort of you, you built a life around and with this person. It's not just that you're no longer with them. You have to actually have to undo the other pieces that your life is connected to. At least not, not all of it, obviously, but um, some of it you have to build new parts. And so you have to really lean into that um, new community. Just try, dude, just get out there and just try shit. Go do new things. Go explore. 33 is not that old. I get that it's probably less than ideal and probably not what you expected, but young man, <laughs> well, welcome to earth. Shafkot Breakdown was great. Thank you. Appreciate that. Man, I put it out on Tuesday. Here's how, here's how the algorithm works in YouTube. Obviously, as soon as the fight ends, the sooner you can get content up, there's a wave of people ready for it. So like, the goal is to be as quickly and efficiently riding the wave that the algorithm provides, which Sunday is a huge day. Monday is also a big day. Tuesday is not, and Wednesday is basically dead. So the goal is to make effective use of any breakdown. It should be out ideally on Sunday, certainly no later than Monday morning. 
um, because that's when you can still get a big audience out of it. Uh, I didn't do that, and I fucking paid for it, but I do believe in the quality of the analysis. I did notice one thing that I missed, where Rachmanov is leans into the power side from one of his stances, and I didn't pick it up the first time, because sometimes you just don't see it, no matter how many times you watch. Then I saw he was leaning and leaning. That's one of the reasons why, even though uh, Rachmanov had lead outside foot positioning, um, you could still see... Neil able to catch him with his power hand because he should be too far away but if I lean into it it can uh, it can get me right so I missed that but in general I think the quality of the analysis is pretty high uh thank you Tuco Luke hope you're well I'm getting married in October all right met someone else can't get that out of my head love my partner don't know what to do uh you <laughs> Oh, that's bad. Yeah, you're probably not ready to get married, if I could just be honest with you. Um, I want to be clear. It's not like I don't ever notice, like, attractive women. It's not like I don't notice, you know, women who are funny or, you know, some some combination that me or any other man might find, you know, interesting or otherwise alluring. But I don't feel like that about other women. Right, where I can't get them out of my head. I don't feel like that about other women. Um, now, I'm not here to say that I've got it all figured out or that, you know, some paragon of excellence, far from it. I'm just telling you, like, if you're naturally feeling this way, I would talk to someone about it. Like, don't just take what I'm saying as gospel. Obviously, don't ever do that. That would be a really bad idea. But um, I would say that if you're feeling that way, unless a medical professional tells you that that's normal and it's a function of X, Y, Z thing that you're actually internalizing and it results in that, which it could be, but it seems to me it's a very much a red flag. I would, I would, I would, you should talk to someone about that. Uh, Tuco out here just being a generous gem. How would Pareda do against top heavyweights like Gon? Well, now Gon's obviously got some good striking. So, you know, we're bashing Gon for his ground game, but it's, his standup is very good. But, you know, I think gone because of his movement and his ability to, like, absorb the power of Pareto, he would be a tough customer. But, like, do I think Pareto would be would be competitive with him? Sure. Yep. Absolutely. We need Mike Perry on the UFC. <laughs> we need Mike Perry on the UFC Africa card. Yeah, I guess we do. I guess we do. That's fucking hilarious. All right. Your opinion on Gordon versus B-team drama. Funny, entertaining, annoying. Is Gordon a match versus Craig Jones in the trolling wars? I've not seen uh, Gordon's responses of late. Going to be hard to outdo Craig Jones in the uh, in the drilling department. Do you guys, have you followed this? Okay. Let me, let me I, I noticed this the other day. I was watching some tutorials on BJJ Fanatics because that's just what I do. So let me show you this. Hold on. Have you seen the names of his fucking programs? Like, they're fucking hilarious, okay? And they didn't used to be. Like, he started doing something different. So, um, look at this. Hold on. Look at this. Okay. Just stand up. 
And it's actually like a real instructional about like getting up off the bottom from pins and whatnot. But you know, whenever people joke about like jujitsu doesn't work, just stand up. He has one there. Now these all have, uh, you know, real names, fight dietitian, like le- down under leg attacks, you know, whatever. And that's nothing too crazy there. But then you get to some other ones. Get off my legs, gringo. A complete roadmap to defending the modern leg lock game. How about Mexican ground karate? Now shouts to Seth Smith of Upstream BJJ, who was calling jujitsu, this is not a joke, as early as 2008, Native American ground karate. So someone took it and changed it, and then these guys started running with it. But definitely, they're not the inventor of that name. However, it's still pretty funny to do that. Oh, here's a great one. How about Power Bottom, an inclusive modern approach to guard? (laughs) Or the Pendejo Guard, (laughs) right? Which is apparently $0. I don't even know what the fuck that is. Make Z-Guard great again. Power Top, Power Ride. Okay, so there's a bit of a thing there. Here's my favorite. False reap accusations. There's a position in jiu-jitsu called the false reap. And of course, it's a play on false (laughs) rape accusations, but it's false reap accusations. The reach around, a.k.a. octopus guard. And it goes on. It goes on from here. There might be some other ones. Scottish neckties. I don't know what the fuck that is. Okay, but you get the idea. Like, I just started noticing he's got all these fucking weird-ass names. Like, you're not going to beat that guy when it comes to that kind of a thing. So, I've not seen the back and forth. I try not to pay too much attention to it. But Craig is, you know, maybe Gordon could beat Craig on the competition, but not this kind of it. No, it's not going to work. Uh, do you have any advice for someone going through severe existential anxiety? Yeah, talk to a therapist. You guys, every time I get questions like who I've got this major life dilemma, what should I do? You should talk to someone about how you feel because what they might be telling you or excuse me, what they might be able to tell you. And by the way, they might not, not everything will work in every way you imagine, but what they might be telling you is if you have anxiety or some kind of existential crisis, studying Heidegger at the 400 college level is not really going to help you all that much navigate the particular circumstances of your life. Um, I do think that reading those things can help you with um, sorting your ethics, big picture ideas, understanding coherent arguments, putting a framework together of how you see the world. Um, And so maybe some of that is missing, but like, it's not like you could go and take a semester of philosophy classes and this would all be better. It it may not. I think in many ways it would do nothing for you. Um, If you're if you're feeling the way you're feeling, you need, you have a mental health issue. And that doesn't mean anything's wrong with you in the permanent sense, but it does mean you have something that needs to get addressed. Go address it. I have seen there's this new movement to be like, I don't want to talk to, I thought, who was it? Some guy, I forget his name. And he was like, women shouldn't be psychotherapists. And it's like, dude, how the fuck are you on Instagram sharing willingly opinions this stupid? Like how... How do you do that? I mean, we all say stupid things, right? Like, like, okay, fine. But like, how do you do that? Or like you build in like layers of idiocy together, packaged in a very moronic way, and then share it confidently with these like vast undertones of ignorance and misogyny. It's like, how do you even, how do, how do you get to that point? You know, uh, you get to that point by rejecting good advice and proper channels of 
health and wellness. That's how you get there. And also, you just don't actually read anything useful. Yeah, we talked about this one already. Um, I don't get it. I don't. I, I Usman should be favored. Usman should be favored heavily. That discrepancy seems weird. With Shevchenko's loss, how much more impressive is Mighty Mouse's title reigns? Well, they're very different title reigns. Um, I, I, I didn't think of his so much as a function of hers or vice versa. So I don't, I don't quite get the question. I mean, I get maybe it's 125, 125. She got stopped at, what, nine title defenses, eight, something like that. It's so a little bit short of his. Yeah, dude, his is extremely impressive. And it just I guess I would say this. Shevchenko had a huge lead on that division. Um, and Mighty Mouse kind of had a lead, but in some ways almost grew into it, um, where I don't think she did as much. I think that, and also he had success, you know, at, at a higher weight class in ways that she never did. Like, yeah, Mighty Mouse to me has a, a great claim for, um, being one of the very best fighters ever. Thanks for the tech analysis. I know it's mostly a gift to the hardcores. Your analysis can be taken straight to the training room. P.S. You were dead right originally about Bo Nichols choke. So yes and no. I mean, I was right in the sense that like, if he really wanted to tighten that choke, that's not the way to do it. That's true. That is not the way to get the tightest choke you can get. Not at all. The knee cut to the other side. And again, the reason I knew that is because that that knee cut from that position from three-quarter mount was initially taught to me by Seth Smith when he was an instructor at the Arlington, at the time, 50-50 location. They moved to Falls Church, but they were briefly in Arlington right off Clarendon Boulevard for a long time. I used to go over there on occasion and train with Seth, and he showed me a cross choke from the mount where if I have a grip inside their gi and I've got my forearm down, uh, rather than just trying to reach for the other side, you can kind of put your head down, reach to the other side, you can get the cross choke, and then you can you can knee cut to the other side. It'll actually swing their hips around sometimes if they um, hold on too tight, and you can actually knee cut, and you can really get that deep slide on the choking arm. That's actually how I learned that knee cut was from that exact sequence. So using it from a pin where you have the head and arm triangle where the shoulders are pinned uh, only makes sense. That's how you get a tighter choke. However, what was explained to me was the modern game says, well, maybe we don't want the tightest choke possible. What we want is a little bit of a trade-off. Let's make the choke a little less tight, but let's get the positional security way higher by not fully giving up that three-quarter so we can reattain mount or the back in the event that this person moves, and then we can just kind of slow bleed the choke. Turns out that's a more modern thing, but because I haven't been in the gym and, and uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have access more readily to the modern stuff, that was a blind spot for me. Did you, did you ever see Vadim Nemkov or any of the Pitbull brothers competing in UFC? Pitbull brothers, no. Nemkov, maybe. But even then, Nemkov's got Fedor in his ear, so even then, probably not. Will we see another long-reigning champion? Yes. Or will those only happen at the start of a weight class? DJ Valentina, GSP Jones. Um, What? Jones did not start the weight class. Or did GSP? I don't quite understand that. Um, but yes, you will see long title reigns. Any sources that criticize MMA journalism? This is a paper I'm writing for School on Ethics in Sports Journalism. Um, the old Deadspin had some writing on it. Um, 
there used to be a Twitter account called like MMA Media Watch or something, and they had some published work on this. There's not much. You just kind of have to know the ecosystem a little bit. And, you know, there, there's almost no MMA journalism. By the way, I, I uh, oh, Bloody Elbow is now on Substack. You should go subscribe. You guys should go subscribe. I think it's bloodyelbow.substack.com. Uh, I subscribed. Strongly recommend you do. We have got to make sure that that entity. Look, did you see the recent reporting from John Nash that he did on Bloody Elbow about the new UFC contracts? So since 2017, they've changed things again. I'm not sure how recently, but relatively recently. So now um, they're making people require to not participate in class action lawsuits. They have to sign that away. Oh, I have something I want to say. And among other things, there are ways in which they can extend contracts. So the contracts still have like a five-year sunset, but they don't start, not when you sign it, they start upon the first day of your fight but that could be a while before it ever gets going. So they can add tons of time. If you get an injury suspension, that adds time to it. They believe, again, some of this is not fully sorted, but it looks that way. Uh, and then, you know, I think Fightful had asked a bunch of, like all the top managerial agencies for a response to some of these changes and they got no fucking response. There are, someone asked me on this chat a long time ago. Here's a great one I wanted to do. Someone asked me on this chat a long time ago, like what makes a good manager from a bad one? I have a much better answer for you than I did the last time. The answer is basically this. There are guys like Nate Diaz's manager where Nate is his only client in MMA. Like he's got other manager, you know, he manages other famous people or whatever, but that's his only MMA client. And so he can make, he can do PR for him. He can, you know, cause he's got tons of contacts at LA this and New York that and whatever. Um, he can help him manage any offers to do, sponsorships he can help procure some of them and he can really actually help nate negotiate a fair uh, good number like he understands what the number is how to get he, he's a skilled negotiator like that's really providing value right really providing value not just looking over contracts but um helping this guy manage the business around him and the particular business of the fight game itself very very valuable there are managers like that. They don't have to have one client. Some of them have many more, but in general, the fewer they have, the better. But here's the other difference. The other type of manager in MMA is what I call a rent seeker. So here's the other way to look at MMA managers. What the what a lot of the other ones do is they act as basically brokers for the UFC. The UFC is looking for a 170 or a 135er on this date, blah, 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 in this city, who's ready. And what the manager tells that fighter who is unsigned to them, hey, I can get you access to the UFC. So they sign with that manager, and then the manager gets them a deal with UFC. And then you think, wow, man, my manager really done something for me here. But they're just trying to get as many of those guys as they can. Most of those guys won't go anywhere. The only real money you'll make off of them is obviously you'll get you know 10 or whatever percent of their wages, but you get the money by having them in bulk. That's why they've got like 500 clients or in certain cases, right? So they act as brokers and rent seekers. But if you're a broker, who are you a broker for? Are you a broker for the fighters? Doesn't seem that way to me. You're a broker for the UFC in that case. So that to me is the biggest difference. There are guys who have like small boutique outfits or, you know, a very minimal-ish client list and they can really focus on these are more, often more senior fighters who have more complicated needs and they need someone to help them navigate that that seems like a real value but the rent seekers they in my judgment they don't work for the fighter they work for themselves and the ufc that's 
that relationship in order to maintain that is the most important thing to keeping that business model alive is being the broker for them. 24 and I work at a sales job, netting me six figures. Okay, you're doing great. My dream, however, is to be in the film industry. What should I do? Um, you will need about five to six years before you can ever fully make that commitment. So you need to decide in the next five or six years, how am I going to make money? If you have to keep your sales job, then keep it, but then figure out how you're going to add all of the other things in there that are going to get you to where you want to go. Or if you have a different way you can make money, then do that. But just recognize any kind of lateral move in life, especially in your 20s, to get it to fully stick, it's going to take five to seven years, really at a bare minimum. And um, what is your plan for that? What is your plan to get from there to there in terms of paying everything? Um, what if it doesn't work? What's your out? How much security do you want to keep? How much security do you want to jettison? These are the things you need to decide. And then once you figure out how you can make money and then buoy your efforts, what are the steps you need to do to get into that? Whatever those may be. So work on that, my friend. News of Kadyrov being poisoned. I'll wait to hear it from another source, but we'll see if it's true. Did you enjoy some of the classic 80s movies, such as Goonies, Stand By Me, Lost Boys, and License to Drive? Who didn't? Any other teen movies from the 80s you enjoyed? Teen Wolf? Um, was it Shredder or Shredding, the, the skating movie? That was fucking great. Um, Predator. You know, it was an eight. I think Predator came out in what, 87? Let's see. Did that come out? 87. Yeah. So, you know, but like teen movies, Teen Wolf was a big one. Obviously, uh, Revenge of the Nerds was a big one. Well, those are all just very rapey movies now, unfortunately. Any thoughts on the. I get why these teams don't want to pay the money for a guy who's been injured the last two seasons, but I don't, and I get why even some commanders fans like, let's keep Sam Howell and then use the extra money to buy other things. I get that too. It does seem weird to me that a guy this good can't get like, he's going to end up on the franchise tag. Probably. It seems weird that he can't get another offer somewhere else. By the way, did you guys see this? Do you know what Carson Wentz's lifetime earnings are in the NFL? I think this is all guaranteed money. $128 million. $128 million. To like, I I was feeling, you know, you feel bad for Carson because he gets beat up in all these like games and in the media too. And then I'm like, this fucker made $128 million? Yeah, you can insult him. Fuck him. <laughs> I don't know, Ron Jakar. I don't know. Does Nganu fight this year? Yeah. Who would he fight first? Maybe Deontay? The Deontay and Andy Ruiz fight fell through. So Deontay needs an opponent. Uh, he's expensive. I don't know. Jones cheated three times. LOL. No way he's the go. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. If you ask the uh, independent arbiter who decided two of his cases, that's not true. And if you look at the other two, he got caught by a system that would no longer flag anything he had. In fact, it took the difficulty that he and other athletes went through before the scientific situation had changed. Listen, if you want to tell me you personally believe he'd used, shit, I might even believe it too. In fact, I probably do. I believe that most of these guys at some point, if they're not on it now, have they used at some point? 
Um, not, there's not a name you could introduce to me that would surprise me. Not one. Um, so if you want to believe that, that's fine. But again, the question goes back to what the evidence, available evidence suggests to us and what it tells us. Two independent arbiters that suggested his claims about how he got contaminated uh, substances in his body check out. And then the other two would no longer even hold up to scientific scrutiny about what anti-doping agencies can do to look for reasonable amounts of doping. Like there is a significant amount of exoneration that the legal system provided to him provide that, that in fact did provide. Like you can you can say you don't care about that on a personal level, that's fine, but that's public evidence that does count for his resume as well. Also, the idea that like you know, anyone pre USADA, including GSP or anybody else, like every time they were clean. Again, I'm not making any accusations about things I don't know about, but like, I don't think any of the, I don't think anyone from that era deserves the benefit of the doubt. You need four mustache. Your wife more enjoy for making. <laughs> I still wait for India UFC. I'm excellent. Four box and wrestle, man. Tell four angry man, no hair. I ready. All right. We'll do Ranjakar. Is it possible we could see Jones versus Brock? I fucking hope not. I don't care. I barely care about Jones versus Stipe, but um, definitely not Brock. What do you make of Habib popping out of retirement to invite Gon to train with him and Dag? Did he really? I didn't see that. Would it even help Gon at all against Jones? Yes. Yes. Dude, his level. Okay. I'm trying to be as nice about this as I can. He has such a great need in terms of how little he knows and how far he has to go, the need is so pronounced that it's hard for me to see virtually any other place as anything but an upgrade. Like there are vast amounts of things he could learn. Uh, and he needs to, if he wants to ultimately get where he, he could go. It's like, he, it, we're talking a very rudimentary level for this, for a UFC title fight, like un, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Did you prefer to see Messi or Ronaldo in their prime? Uh, I mean, obviously, one played for a team I liked and one didn't, but, like, I don't have a... They're, they're different strikers, too. People don't talk enough about that. Like, you're not going to see Messi heading in shit a lot, you know, and Ronaldo was aerial on set pieces often. Uh, a lot of fighters were mentioned how they would do against Jones across promotions, but no one mentioned Spivak or Mal Malikin. Yeah, dude, Anatoly Malikin is the guy to watch. The interim heavyweight, current light heavyweight champion of one. He's really a heavyweight. He is a beast, a beast. He is a beast and a half. That's the guy you got to watch. Uh, Anatoly Malikin. How would he do against Jones? I don't know. That's a different fight because he's got tremendous takedown defense and he can fucking thump and he's quick. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Love that. Spivak, I don't know. Which social media platform do you think is the most profitable? The most profitable? Probably Instagram. Uh, your, or I guess if you're counting YouTube, it'd be YouTube, right? Uh, your guess on the range of average payout for a popular top MMA YouTube channel. A top one? So like in the, in the, in like hundreds of thousands of subscribers, I'm going to guess... I mean, 25000 a month and up. Um, I mean, just think about this. MMA on point. So they had how many guys in staff? They had one, two, three, four, five guys on staff and office space rented. And they had a studio 
They had a flat room. They had another space for like stuff. Like uh, they had a cage set up. And uh, then they had other room to shoot like in the main room. And they had all that office space. Um, and they have, I think, just shy of a million subs. Like how do you pay all of that? Unless you're making well north of 25000 a month. Like you, you know what I mean? Like um, they, they might make even more than that. Like I don't know. Um, yeah, they, you would make a lot. The Paul Craig RSD was incredible. It's in first place now. Go Army. Go Navy, but thank you. Uh, I think that's it. All right. Appreciate it. Hey, thumbs up on this. Go check out my breakdown on Shavkat Rachmanov. I think you'll like it. Talk about the good. We talk about the bad. But we talk about it all just the same. So thank you guys so much for watching. I appreciate it. MK is tomorrow. We'll be back together again. And that's it for me. Podcast goes up tonight. We'll change the thumbnail later. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, stay frosty, bitches.